Amen. If you would, please be seated and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. Of late, we've been covering a portion of 1 Kings where the author switches back and forth between uh, the accounts of the kings in the southern kingdom, and now we turn to the account of the kings in the northern kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. And Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, the king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laging siege to Gibbethon. And so Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa the king of Judah and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shelonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over Israel at Terzah. He reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat." Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of, kings of Israel? And Baasha slept with his fathers and was buried at Terzah, and Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, both because of all the, all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the works of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the 26th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah. And he reigned two years, but his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned in his place." When he began to reign, as soon as he, is in, as he had seated himself on the throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or of his friends. And thus Zimri destroyed 
all the house of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa the king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terzah. And now the troops were encamped at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he's killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king of Israel that day in the camp. And so Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him and they besieged Terzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and for his sin, which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganoth, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganoth. And so Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 21st year, 31st year of Asa, the king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. He bought the hill country of Samaria, of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Omni slept, Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa the king of Judah, Ahab... The son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And, the, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned in Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took his wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
And we give you thanks for your word and we thank you, O oh Lord, that you have written it uh, with us in mind. Thousands of years later, Lord, you intend to, to, to speak to your people and to feed your sheep uh, with even these words. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would do exactly that tonight. Uh, would you, by your Spirit, uh, speak to our hearts and show us Christ? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One thing that we can be sure of in our day and time is that the number of subscription services is not lacking. Uh, You can get a subscription service for pretty much anything that you want. Uh, Lots of subscription subscription services exist exist for uh, TV shows, right? Um, Home warranties, right? You can pay this this number of uh, this amount of money up front when you buy your home, and supposedly they'll fix any problems that come up within a certain amount of time. Right? They have extended warranties. We have, you know, diapers and wipes you can even get on subscription services. Uh, you can even get food sent to your house on a, descript- on a subscription service. This is one that I think we have availed ourselves of, perhaps maybe more than we should. Uh, whenever we uh, had Rowan and then whenever we had Sutton, uh, one of the ways that we kind of made it easier on ourselves is we subscribed to one of these, these, uh, these companies that send you all the ingredients for your meal in the mail. And what comes in the bag is the ingredients for the meal and then the, and then the instructions. And one of the things that's super uh, good about it is that everything is there in the bag and all you have to do is pull it out of the fridge and cook it. And it's usually pretty good food, but it also gives you technique. And one of their, one of their kind of major selling points is all those things, but also the fact that it would save you grocery money. Right? You don't have to go to the, to the grocery store so many times. And, and if you're, all of the ingredients for your food is already in your refrigerator in a bag, then you don't have to buy all those unnecessary things that you buy when you go to the grocery store. And so supposedly, it saves you money. Until it doesn't. You know, with the subscription services, you know, they, they you know, perhaps save you some money until the show that you want to watch is on a different service. Or until the home warranty doesn't cover the thing that it's supposed to. Or the extended warranty for your car doesn't cover the thing it's supposed to. Or you just get tired of eating that food that's coming from that place and you want to go get something different and you need to go to the grocery store anyways. And your grocery bill winds up exceeding that which it was beforehand. And the thought comes to our mind that, you know, if I have to spend the money anyway... What good is this particular service doing, right? If I have to go to the grocery store anyway, what good is this food service doing for me? If I have to go to the grocery store and buy things in the first place, why, why do I even have this thing? It doesn't seem like it's doing what it was supposed to do, what it was designed to do, what they sold me uh, that it would do. And there may come certain circumstances in the Christian life that kind of calls us to apply that same line of reasoning to our faith, particularly when when our faith starts to cost us something, whether it be uh, pain, emotional pain, or physical pain, or uh, any sort of suffering. These things often prompt us to question the validity of our beliefs, right? They often 
prompt us to question, what, what, what good is my faith? What good is my relationship with the covenant God of Israel? What, what good is it doing me? And after it causes us to ask these questions, it often tempts us with something else. Right? If I still have to endure pain and suffering, if I'm a, if I'm, if I'm a believer, then why be a believer in the first place? Right? If I still have to endure pain and suffering, what good is there in being in a covenant relationship with God? Right, the thought kind of goes like this, you know, if I'm going to have to experience this pain and suffering either way, then why am I obligating myself to the Lord of Israel? Why am I ob- obligating myself to the Lordship of Christ? Wouldn't I be better off to just go and at least indulge my sin so that I could be happy for a season? Right, I would at least have that happiness that my, that my sin would buy me. Because we see everyone around us, or lots of people around us, especially the well-to-do in our Fort Mill, local Fort Mill society, we see them, right? They, they seem to live glorious lives, and they seem to be well-off, and they seem to be well-put-together on the outside. Right? If, they have to, if I have to endure the same pain and suffering that, that they do, then what good is it being a Christian? And the psalmist in Psalm 73 kind of gets at this same question. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's looking at the wicked and he's saying, they seem to be prospering. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are stricken like the rest. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. He goes on and he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What's he doing? He's looking at the wicked around him and looking at their prosperity and saying, that looks better than what I have now. And so the question on the table is, well, well, if I'm still going to have to endure the pain and suffering, wouldn't the happiness of my sin at least be enough for me to leave the faith? But at least that little bit of happiness would provide some joy, some peace, surely, wouldn't it? And so sin becomes more desirable than faithfulness. But if this passage teaches us anything, it is that sin leads to death. It is that sin 
does not provide the happiness that it deceitfully promises on the front end. Right? This passage shows us that living in sin is an absolutely miserable way of life. Well, how does it do that? Well, the first thing that it, this passage shows us is that we can call ourselves as being outside of the covenant, right? We can run away from God and we can perhaps, you know, run away from the faith for a season, but it doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign over the affairs of the world, right? Whether we believe in Him or not, it does not change the objective truth that God is sovereign. Right? Out of these six kings that we've just read about, none of them acknowledges God's lordship over human affairs, None of them seems to even know what God's, what God's lordship even is. But that doesn't change who is running the show in the passage. In chapter 15, verses 29 to 30, when, when Basha kills uh, all of, of Nadab and Jeroboam's offspring, who does it say is responsible for this thing? Yes, Basha is responsible and Basha will be later punished for it, but it says it happened according to the word of the Lord. In chapter 16, in verses 2 through 4, God promises, I'm going to do the same thing to you, Basha, because you have acted wickedly. I have put you on the throne, and you have treated me with contempt. And later on, in chapter 16, verses 9 through 13, that's exactly what happens. Zimri is brought into power by God. And what does Zimri do? Well, he strikes down and kills Basha and in seven days kills all of his family and all of his offspring such that none of them are left to assume the kingship. In chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, yes, Zimri commits suicide. But why does he do it? It's because of the sins that he committed against the Lord. What we see in this passage is, is evil men doing evil things. But it's the Lord who is bringing about the circumstances to exact judgment upon them. And this is, this is perhaps most evident and the, 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 maybe the, the most pointed thing that, that kind of proves this is right at the end of the passage in verse 34, chapter 16, verse 34, when just kind of out of nowhere, it says that in his days, in the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho and he laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Way back, hundreds of years ago, uh, Joshua had cursed Jericho and, and, and had said in Joshua chapter 6 verse 26 that any man who rebuilds Jericho would lose his firstborn at the cost of laying its foundation. Exactly this prophecy is being fulfilled. Right? God is running the show. Right? God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is sovereign. And none of these men recognize or, or believe in his lordship. Yet nevertheless, he is still dictating what comes to pass from beginning to end. God still dictates 
what comes to pass, whether we believe in him or trust him or not. The only difference is, is that when we believe in him, we are the recipients of all of his promises. But when we forsake him, we become the recipients of all of his curses. God's word still proves true. God's word still does what he says it's going to do. But instead of enjoying and basking in his promises, we instead receive his curses. It's the fact that, that all of God's word, whether, whether the good parts or the bad parts or whether the grace parts or the judgment parts or whether the promises or the curses, all must come to pass and all will come to pass. But what you're a recipient of is determined by who you put your trust in, whether it be God himself or whether it be your sin. How we respond to God's grace doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign. It doesn't make the curses go away. And it also doesn't make the pain go away. And one of the other things that we notice as this passage progresses is the fact that that sin gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to misery. Right, from beginning to end, when we turn to the kings of Israel after having just read about the kings of Judah, what we want to see is a trajectory like we saw in Judah. I remember in chapters 14 and 15, the uh, king Rehoboam was an evil king, and then King Abijam was an evil king, but then God graced his people. He blessed his people by providing a faithful king, King Asa, who loved the Lord and who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And so when we turn to the kings of Israel, we think to ourselves, oh, surely the Lord will intervene. Surely the Lord will interject himself into this situation and cause some good to come about. But instead, things continue to get worse and worse and worse. Five times it's repeated in this passage that these kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And five times it's repeated in this passage that this king or that king walked in the ways of his father or walked in the ways of Jeroboam. The quantity of evil never stops. Evil is passed down from generation to generation, from king to king, whether it be the king's son or whether it be the king's murderer. Every king in this progression gets evil, more evil and more evil. It's become standard practice in Israel to just kill the king so that you can be king. And perhaps this is most illustrated by the fact that the last two kings that we read about, King Omri and King Ahab, in chapter 16, verses 25 and 30, that each did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but did more evil than all who were before him. And with Ahab, in verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
Sin begets sin. Sin leads to sin. And because the northern kingdom has situated themselves outside of God's covenant and refuse to walk in the ways of David, their father, and refuse to walk in uh, pleasing in the sight of the Lord. We see no intervention on God's behalf like we do in the kings of Judah. The principles demonstrated like we just read in Romans chapter 1 how three times the Lord says that he gave them over. Uh, He gave them over in verse 24, 26, 28 of chapter of, of Romans 1. It seems as if sin knows no bounds. One of the, probably the most interesting things to watch on television, speaking of television, is uh, the, the numerous shows about what it's like in space that have come out recently. Right? These different shows about you know, making different missions to the moon and different missions to Mars, and they try to make them real. But one of the most terrifying things that, that we see in some of those shows is the spacewalks, right? Where you put on your spacesuit and, you know, you're in space, you're not on a planet or anywhere, but you put on your spacesuit space and you go outside of the ship and you have that line that's attached to you. And because in space, right, once you start going in a direction, that going is irreversible unless something else stops you. One of the most terrifying things in, in a couple of the shows is that that tether somehow gets cut or detached. And so when the person goes, they keep going and going and going. There's nothing to stop them. That's what we see in Israel. Is life outside of the covenant. Life that has forsaken itself, that has cut itself off from the promises of God. In that way of life, sin begets sin, and it keeps going and going and going. Whereas with God's people, He always graciously intervenes. Sin begets sin. And sin begets judgment. It's obvious that the people of Israel, led by their kings, have become more and more uh, evil. A few times in the passage, it, it, it says that they provoke the Lord to anger, the, the people, plural, the, the nation provoke the Lord to anger by their idolatry. And how does the Lord respond to her evil kings and to her evil people? Contrast with Judah again. It's not in the category of fatherly discipline, but in the category of divine judgment. Six times in this passage, the author says that the people of Israel or the king provoked the Lord to anger. By what they done. Because of they have did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they provoked the Lord to anger. 
Contrast that with the people of Judah, the kings of Judah, even, even the most wicked one that we read about in chapter 14, King Rehoboam. It says that he, that he provoked the Lord to jealousy. There's a difference in provoking the Lord to jealousy and provoking the Lord to anger. With the kings of Israel, it's anger. With the kings of Judah, the people inside of his covenant, he, he, uh, he provokes them to jealousy. And so what does the Lord do for a consequence of the evil actions of the people of Israel? Well, God pours out his judgment. That's what we see time and time again. Each, each king does, does what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and some, some, uh, something happens. God sends the prophet Jehu, or some other, some other instance occurs where they are judged for their evil actions. But perhaps one of the most illustrative uh, clues that, that God is judging his people here in, in the people of Israel is the lack of stability. Did you notice that, that the introduction of every king that we read, every king of Israel, that a new king in Israel came to be king while the same king in Israel was still on his throne? Six kings come to the throne in Israel while one remains in the southern kingdom in Judah. Right, this lack of stability is also illustrated in the fact that, 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 that one of the kings only reigns one week before he's, or he commits suicide slash executed. And the longest king, at least in this section that reigns in the northern kingdom, reigns 24 years. Just over half of the amount of time of, the, of King Asa in Judah. It's obvious that with sin comes judgment. With sin comes judgment. And, and where we stand with regard to the covenant determines where that judgment goes. You see, sin always demands judgment. God must punish sin. And so if we are inside the covenant, right, if we have been saved by the grace of God, if we are looking to Christ in faith, that judgment falls on Him. Right? He himself takes on himself the wrath of God due, for us, due to us for our sin. But should we forsake the Lord? Should we choose our sin over the Lord himself? Should we abandon the Lord God Almighty? The Bible tells us that judgment falls on us. Inside the covenant in Christ with faith. The judgment falls on Christ. Outside the covenant, without Christ, without faith, judgment is directed to us. Sin has its consequences. And so these three things... Right, the fact that God's sovereignty doesn't go away even if we choose to reject Him. Or the fact that, 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 that sin begets sin and it, it doesn't stop where we want it to. And the fact that God's just and sure judgment will occur, will occur in response to sin. These three things show us the vanity, the futility of seeking momentary happiness in our sin when our faith starts to cost us something. 
Right? These, two, these three things show us that sin leads to death. To say it another way, sin doesn't fix discontentment. But it absolutely multiplies misery. Sin doesn't fix discontentment. But it absolutely multiplies misery. And so if sin doesn't fix discontentment, but if we reach the point in our Christian lives where the pain and the suffering causes us to ask these questions, wouldn't it just be better to walk away? But at least then I would have the happiness of enjoying my sin. If we ever reach that point in our Christian lives, and this passage teaches us that, that, that sin doesn't fix that, that discontentment, then, then what do we do? Right? If sin doesn't fix the discontentment, then, then what does? The only thing that can fix our discontentment in this life is Christ himself. When we are called to question, you know, what, what good is it being a covenant child of God if it's going to cost me? Well, the answer is not go find happiness in my sin. We see the end of that. The answer is I need more of Christ. I need more of His love. I need more of His mercy. I need to know that His sure promises are for me. I need to know His his intercession on my behalf. I need to know that He is shepherding me, that He is taking care of me, that He is caring for me. I I need to know more of His kindness, of of His comfort, of His peace, and of His strength. I need to know that he is providing for me endurance and steadfastness. I need to know that his grace is greater than my sin in a multitude of ways. Sin cannot provide the things that only Christ himself can. Sin cannot fulfill us. Sin cannot make us happy. Sin cannot provide for us joy. Only Christ can. And so running to our sin will not free us from our pain. Only Christ can free us from our pain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for asking hard questions in the scriptures before we can even think to ask them. Perhaps not many of us have asked this one yet and perhaps many of us will ask this one in the future. But with the psalmist, Lord, we know that when we seek how to understand these hard things, it seems to be a wearisome task until we enter the sanctuary of God. And then we get to see truth the truth that sin leads to death, the truth that sin doesn't deliver on its promises, the truth that 
Christ is the only thing who can give me contentment. And so, Father, we pray that you would work in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would make our faith to be strong. And we pray, O Lord, that when we begin to doubt the benefits and blessings that are ours in Christ, uh, that you would remind us of them in a very tangible way, that we might not walk away from the thing that brings us so much joy and satisfaction, but that we might cling to it. And you might use our pain and suffering to grow us and to sanctify us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.